1: Now, before we start, back here on the back, this is a little bit of a riddle. You guys can start figuring out this riddle, all right? When we come to the point in the sermon, I'm gonna give you guys an opportunity to tell me what the riddle means and see how, how many smart people there are in the room, how many people can solve this riddle, all right? You with me? Think all the way back to creation. Go all the way back with me to the very creation of all that we see, right? When God breathed the world into existence, he spoke it into existence, And on the sixth day, he created all of the creeping things of the ground. He created all of the animals, and then he created man in his own image. And he did something very specific. He spoke to man, and he gave man dominion over all of his creation. And he made him a steward over all of that creation. All that he had created, he said to man, this is what I want you to do with this creation that I have made, with the kingdom that I have made. In essence... God comes to man and he takes out the keys and he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Now, fast forward a little time and you know by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, there's the account of the fall of man. right? And what does the enemy do? The slippery serpent comes up to Eve and gets her to question the Lord and his goodness. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of the tree, the forbidden tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Did God really say that? Will you really die if you partake of that fruit? Or will you become more like God? Will you become the ruler of the kingdom? Now, again, think about this just for a moment. God had already given the keys to all of his creation, made man an overseer, a steward of all of his creation. What more did man need? But there in that moment, with that lie, that one simple lie that was spoken, Right? That one simple lie, here's what in Eve's head she's thinking. She's thinking, you know what? If I partake of that tree, I might be able to become God myself. This is the, in the hearts of all of us. We want to be able to be the captain of our own ship. We want to be the steward of our own vessel. But God is that person. He's given to man at this point the kingdom, but we partake of the forbidden fruit. And when we partake of that forbidden fruit, we take the keys that God had given to us, entrusted to our care, speaks of authority, speaks of responsibility, and we take those keys and we surrender those keys to the enemy. And we give up that right, we give up that privilege, we give up that responsibility, and we give up that authority to the enemy, this slippery serpent, and it's been that way since. We surrendered the keys to the kingdom with the fall of man. Now the scripture says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse four, it says, the God of this world, who's that speaking of there? It's speaking of Satan the god of this world we gave the keys over to the creation to satan at the fall we we believed the lie we went with his lie and we surrendered the keys the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of god the scripture says this in ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 that you all all of us in this room we once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air that's who we used to follow we used to follow the enemy before we come to christ right when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. The last temptation of Jesus, the enemy, Satan, takes him up onto a pinnacle, this mountaintop, and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And do you remember what Satan tempts Jesus with? He says, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms. What does that tell me? That tells me that the enemy, that Satan had the authority to give those back to Jesus if Jesus would just take the shortcut and bow and worship. The kingdoms of this world were forfeited to Satan at the fall of man. Now, listen to what it says here, because not only are you and I a part of this fallen creation, also, creation itself was subjected to this fall. If you'll read with me, actually turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to read this with me. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, says, for the creation waits eagerly, longing for the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, that creation and the hearts of believers that we're groaning for that moment when the kingdom is restored, when things are put back the way they were meant to be, Right, You look around the world and this is why there are earthquakes and why there are storms that go crazy. Why? Because creation was even subjected to the fall. Even creation, the keys to creation were surrendered to the enemy and that's why the world is the way it is. Volcanoes erupting and earthquakes happening and flooding and wildfires and all of these things. Creation is subjected to the same fall that man was subjected to spiritually. And even creation is groaning for that moment, that day when the king will return and make it all right again. So what we have when we have Jesus come onto the scene Jesus arrives onto the scene and he begins to preach this message about the arrival of the kingdom of God. Everything had been messed up, turned upside down, broken at the fall. But when Jesus is born, he comes in in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looks like us, but there's no sin found in him. He clothes himself in humanity to come and to redeem humanity, to come set humanity free and also to set creation free from its groaning. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to preach this message of the kingdom of God. And there's something very particular, very specific about the way he preaches about the kingdom of God. If you're taking notes, take out those bulletins. If you're following along from the app online, it'll be in the outline. I'm gonna give you the two main points right up front. You guys good with that? I want you to know this. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of a God, first off, he speaks about a kingdom that is already. The kingdom that is already... And your second main point is even though the kingdom is already, the kingdom is also not quite yet. The kingdom of God is already and the kingdom of God is not yet. How can that be? That's what we're going to look at today. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he's born as a child. He's laid in a manger. We all know this story from the Christmas narrative, right? But something specific happens when Jesus is born and wise men come from Babylon, most likely from Babylon, And they say to King Herod, who is a puppet prince, a puppet king, who was placed there by the Roman government, he's technically the king of the Jews. But these wise men arrive, and they follow a star. And they come, and they speak to Herod. And they say to Herod, we saw the star of the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the Jews. We saw his star, and we followed his star to this place. And Herod says, this is not good for me. This means that my kingdom is is in question. This means that there's another person who has the right to the throne that the Romans have given to me And so he says to those wise men, go find out where he is, where this baby was born, where this king of the Jews is, and then come and get me because I want to worship him as well. Now the Lord speaks to the wise men and reveals to the wise men that this isn't what's going to happen, that Herod has ulterior motives. And so the wise men never return and Herod is enraged and he wants to keep the kingdom, his kingdom to himself. But even more so than that, the enemy is working through King Herod and is trying to keep the kingdom of God from being established. And so what does Herod do? He sends out his minions and he slays all of the children two years, all the male children two years and below to try to slay the king that was born for the Jews. Now, the Lord had spoken to Joseph and to Mary and they flee to Egypt and they're there for a while until Herod is taken off of the scene, until Herod is no longer ruling. They come back and the scripture says that Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and men and that people are really just taken to Jesus. And sometime around the age of 30, Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, again, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, your first sub point is we're going to look at the preparation for the kingdom of God, the preparation for the kingdom. See, there's a man named John the Baptist and he's out preaching in the wilderness and he's clothed with camel skins and he eats wild honey and grasshoppers and just a really weird type of guy. Actually, he's the cousin of Jesus and he's out preaching a message, preparing people. The scripture says that he was sent as a forerunner for Jesus. Jesus himself actually says that John the Baptist is sent as a forerunner to herald people of my coming. The fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John begins to preach a powerful message. And he's out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River and people are flocking to him. And he's preaching a message that is not a feel-good message. John the Baptist would likely not be welcomed into the church in America today because he preaches a message of repentance. And repentance is a word that is sadly missing from the vocabulary and the vernacular of the church today. But he preaches a message of repentance and he says, if you want to be prepared for the coming kingdom, you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn, the word repent, means to turn from your wicked ways, to turn from your worldly ways, to turn from your sinfulness. And here's the fact of the matter is that none of us in this room can be prepared to live for God's kingdom if we're still living for the world. You understand that, don't you? You can't live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. That's never going to work. Actually, Jesus refers to those people in the book of Revelation as those who are lukewarm. You're trying to be hot and cold at the same time, and you're either going to have to choose one or the other. You can't be both hot and cold. You're either hot or cold. And if you try to be both, Jesus says, I will spew you, vomit you from my mouth. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist begins to preach this message. Listen to what Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. And this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 verses one through 11, and Malachi chapter three, verses one through six. You can read those later, but listen to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus's words. He says to the crowds, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? He says, yes, and I tell you more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He's preparing people for the arrival of the king. Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's there. It's at the doorsteps. Now, it's fitting that this same message that, John the Baptist began preaching. As soon as Jesus was finished being tempted in the wilderness and he begins his public ministry after having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit falls upon him like a dove. There's that booming voice. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And Jesus goes out. Again, that's important. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And what does Jesus first say when he goes out from that baptism and he begins to preach publicly? He says, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. God's voice thunders from the clouds. Listen to my beloved son. He begins to preach and he preaches a message of repentance. Turn from the world, turn from your sin, turn from that wickedness and turn to God. You need to be prepared because the kingdom of God is at hand. Same exact message that John the Baptist, if Jesus were here in the midst of the American church today, Jesus himself would not be welcomed into the church because that's how watered down we are. Because that's how afraid we are of offending people when we preach a message of repentance. Let me say this very clearly. There is no love in a tolerance that refuses to call sin, sin. And what is our culture trying to get us to do? Lulling us to sleep is you can't call that sin, sin. You can't say that about that person. You can't make that person feel bad about that kind of sin. No, we have to call a spade a spade. Sin is sin. Let me put it to you like this, right? If I was out on a group date with some people, Sarah and I, before we got married, I'm out on a group date, all right, and I arrive there, and my zipper's down. Okay, pretty embarrassing moment, wouldn't you say? My zipper's down. I'm spending this time, this first time I'm meeting Sarah with a date, a group of people, and my zipper's down. Now, I hope there's someone in the crowd, someone in the group there that we're with that's going to come up and say, hey, man, your zipper's down. Now, am I gonna be offended that they did that? No, they're sparing me an incredible amount of embarrassment. How about we go on to dinner? I order an extra helping of broccoli, and I got those little fluorides stuck in my teeth. You know what I'm talking about? Right? You got those, and I'm smiling, my biggest smile, and I'm trying to be friendly, and I've got green broccoli in my teeth. I hope there's someone around the table that's gonna whisper in my, hey, you got some broccoli in your teeth. I'm not going to be upset that they're pointing out that flaw because that flaw is embarrassing to me. The trouble with the world today is we're not embarrassed, we're not grieved over sin the way we should be. Why would I care more about whether or not my fly is open or I have broccoli in my teeth than that I'm grieving God's heart by living a lifestyle of sin? I hope that there would be someone in this room that is willing to call sin, sin. Why? Because people cannot be prepared for the kingdom of God if they haven't repented, turned from that sin and turned back to God. The most loving thing that this church and any church can do is be truthful and honest about what sin is and to call sin, sin. It is a loving, compassionate thing to tell someone you need to repent and turn from that life and turn to God. God has something so much better for you than that. See, John the Baptist was sent as a herald. He was sent as a forerunner. He was sent as someone to preach that, hey, the kingdom of God is here. You need to get your life together. You need to get your spiritual house in order. You need to make sure your heart is right because the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. It has arrived. If someone in this room had an absolute cure for COVID, I would expect that you would herald that cure that you would not hold that to your, if someone in this room had the cure for cancer, I would expect that you would broadcast that far and wide. Why would you not let other people know that there's a cure for your sickness, for your ailment, for your disease? You don't have to have your body stricken and ravaged and destroyed by that virus or by that illness any longer. You can find freedom from that sickness because I have a cure. You realize church, don't you, that you have the cure for sin, you have the cure for spiritual death, you have the cure for eternal separation from God, but we're too afraid of offending somebody. We won't tell them their zipper's down. It makes no sense. The kingdom of God is here, and if we want to be busy about preparing people for that kingdom, we need to tell them that it's time You need to turn from that old life. You need to turn from that sin and from that wickedness, and you need to get your heart right with God. You need to get back into his presence. The first thing there is that preparation for the kingdom. The second point I want you to take note of here is that there's a prince in this kingdom. There's a prince in this kingdom. Just as Herod, king of the Jews, recognized that there was a threat to his throne, When Jesus came on, something was different about him. He's sent as the king of the Jews. The scripture foretold the exact moment. In the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesied the exact moment that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Palm Sunday, declaring himself to be the Messiah of the Jewish people, the king of the Jews. And as he rode on that donkey coming into Jerusalem, people were waving palm branches and they were shouting and they were worshiping and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Come save us, they were saying. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, deliver us, save us from this oppression. And so they're worshiping, they're waving palm branches. They're offering up that worship to Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem, but they were expecting a king that would come and deliver them nationally and militarily from the oppression of the Romans. And Jesus didn't come in his first coming to deliver the Jews nationally or to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. He came to deliver the world spiritually from sin. And the moment that those crowds recognized that that wasn't the king that they wanted to worship, They turned on him in a moment. And that same crowd that in one breath was crying out, Hosanna, began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Just in a moment. Why? Because Jesus didn't come in the form that they wanted. Jesus didn't come as the king that they were expecting. So in a moment, their worship goes from save us to kill him. Think about that just for a moment and let that sink in. See, the prince of this kingdom, Jesus foretold he would come in. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. The the high priest guards come and they take him captive and they take him to stand trial before Pilate. And there before Pilate, their accusation that they have of Jesus is we've heard of this man and we found this man who calls himself a king. And there's no king but Caesar. right? There's no king but Caesar. They were just waiting for him to come as king. But he didn't do what they wanted him to do. So they turn and they say, we heard this guy who says he's a king and he refuses or he tells us that we don't need to pay tribute or worship or give our money to Caesar. He says he's the king of the Jews. And so Pilate questions Jesus on this. They say that you say you're the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Now, Jesus is taken He's beaten, he's whipped, he's flogged, his beard is plucked, he's blindfolded, he's suspended upon a cross, and there upon a cross, Pilate has a sign hanging over Jesus's head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now this brings us to our riddle here for a moment. So we're going to take a little siesta in the midst of the sermon for a second, all right? Has anybody has anybody solved my little riddle up here yet? Kelly thinks he has it. Kelly, you're waving back at the back. What do you? Th- 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 he's not a plant, okay? He's not a plant. We did not rehearse this before service. Kelly, what do you think? What do you think the riddle is? Help S O S. There's a smart man at the back of the room right there. Now, does anybody? Did anybody else get that? Anybody else get that? The riddle to this is help S O S. Why? Because this is an acrostic. Have you heard of an acrostic? Circle the first letter of each word, and there's a hidden meaning. Help, S-O-S. Does that make sense? Now, here's what's amazing about what was written over the... I I hope that this blows your mind and you leave here worshiping the Lord a little bit more fully than you came. Here's what's amazing about what was written above the cross... The scripture says that it was written in three languages, one of those languages being Aramaic. You can find this in John chapter 19. In Aramaic, just like in Hebrew, very similar to Hebrew, it's a sister dialect to Hebrew. It would be written from the right to the left or read from the right to the left. So in English, we read this direction. It's backwards for us if we're reading Aramaic or if we're reading Hebrew. So this is what it would say, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, suspended over Jesus as he's hung upon the cross. Now, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they use acrostics very often as a part of their form of poetry, So what's amazing about what was written above the cross, what Pilate, a completely secular person, not a believer, just a governor of Rome, just someone who's in charge of being able to carry out a death sentence, a capital death sentence. That's his role here, right? And so he writes this above that cross. Nobody asks him to do this. This is what the charges were against him. This is what they brought as charges. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, if you write this out and it's acrostic, right, you have this, and I don't write Hebrew, so I'm just taking this and sharing this with you. Don't think that I'm that intelligent. I'm not, right? So look at this. This would be the acrostic. Are you following me? Because it goes the opposite direction. Are you following me? The opposite direction, okay? So this is what the acrostic would be. Now, when you translate this acrostic into English, this... Sign right here, a symbol, is Yod, which would be our Y. This symbol here would be an H, He. This would be a Y, a W, which is Yav. And this would be an H, He. Yod, H, Yad, We. If you read this in our direction, what would this spell? What is Y-H-W-H? Yahweh. Why were the Jews so offended that Pilate would put this above the sign? Remember, Jesus was on the scene. Who do men say that I am? Well, the, we, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some one of the other prophets. We'll read that in a second. Jesus at one point said, before Abraham was, I am, the self-existent one. They're on this sign suspended above the cross is an acrostic with a hidden meaning that is literally telling the Jews that you are crucifying the great I am. You are crucifying your God
0: upon a Roman cross.